This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Autism looks different for everyone living with it, especially young children. For some, it means having difficulty communicating. And for others, it can include having focused interests or sensitivity to changes in routine. But when some families notice these behaviors, it can take months to get the medical diagnosis that they need to begin seeking care. And those months can make a real difference when it comes to long-term positive outcomes in development and behavior. So with us now to talk about a new effort in Illinois to improve access to early intervention programs and autism diagnoses is Megan Roberts, Associate Professor of Communication Sciences and Disorders at Northwestern University and Principal Investigator of the Early Intervention Research Group. Hi, welcome to Reset, Megan. Thanks so much for having me. So I want to talk about early intervention for autism to to start off. What is the ideal age for a, a child that's exhibiting signs of autism to actually receive early intervention care? I would say as soon as a caregiver is um, observing characteristics as we want to get that child the resources and, and supports as soon as possible. And so, you know, we're very good at identifying autism at 24 months. We're sometimes good at 18 months. It really depends on the kiddo. But for most kids, we really want them getting intervention before 36 months of age. So when you say we're really good or sometimes good at, at uh, identifying autism at 18 to 24 months, what does it look like? What are we looking for? What are the signs? Yeah, so the earliest, the tiniest of humans, um, you might see uh, children who don't coordinate attention, for example. You know, imagine um, like a, a train goes by and it says and it makes a really big noise. Um, you might expect a, a two-year-old to look at the train, look back at their parent, and basically communicate, look, whoa, did you just see that train? Um, autistic kids might not uh, demonstrate their interest in that train in the same way. And so they might just look at the train, they might point at the train, but they're, they might coordinate that attention a little bit differently with their caregiver. I see. Uh, so the earlier, the better uh, to catch these kinds of, of behaviors so that the child can actually go through proper evaluation. But is it possible for those signs to develop later, after two or three years old? So part of the um, the DSM-5 criteria is that these characteristics occur early in development. I give my niece as an example. My niece is autistic, and she was diagnosed um, later at six or seven. And she had – the characteristics were present when she was younger, but she didn't need the support. So even though she might have been learning differently or interacting differently, and my sister, of course, knew um, she had that mom spidey sense, but it wasn't impacting her significantly. She was, you know, living her best two-year-old life um, and thriving. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until the demands, the social demands got a little bit more that then it became evident that she needed some more supports. Mm -hmm. And so it, the signs, the, the characteristics were always there. It was more just the impact of those characteristics changed as she got older. And I want to make the distinction because on the flip side of that, I've seen, I've witnessed friends, children who maybe at the young, younger age, maybe, you know, between 18 and 24 months, displayed what looked maybe like signs. Maybe they weren't speaking as clearly as the parent thought that they should. Um, and so there was a tendency to just automatically say, oh, maybe they're on the spectrum. Maybe that's what it is. Turns out, fast forward, the child wasn't on the spectrum. So how do we make the distinction? Like, How can care, caregivers distinguish uh, behaviors that maybe do or don't necessarily point to autism? That is such a great point. And often we see that, right, that the caregivers identify 
communication as their first thing that thinks, hmm, something might be a little bit different with right. my child. She's 18 months and she's not speaking as clearly, but, but sometimes she's just 18 months and doesn't have a huge vocabulary. Exactly. And there can be all kinds of things, reasons why children aren't talking um, at the age we would expect. Yeah. One of them is autism. Other is um, developmental language uh, disorder. And that um, is when language is the primary difficulty in the child, but there's no other explanation. Um, Kids can have hearing loss. There are lots of other things. And so really, for me, I would say to a caregiver is like, you don't have to really know the why. All you have to do is trust your gut. Like if you're thinking to yourself, hmm, I'm not quite sure what's going on. I'm just a little bit, I want more information. I would then absolutely talk to your pediatrician and ask um, them potentially for a referral to your early intervention system. Yeah. The CDC's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, it shows that autism rates in the U.S. increased from 1 in 150 children to 1 in 54 children in 2016. And most recently, 1 in 36, this is per Autism Speaks. What do you think has led to the increase? I mean, that is that's like, quite the jump. No, that is the money question. I, You know, I think we are better at um, identifying um, autism. I think that's one thing. I think there is greater awareness. So um, before, sometimes you might say like, you know what, this person might need a little bit more supports, but generally like is, is you know, doing okay in school where now we're, we're really saying like, oh no, we can do better. We yeah. can do better by these kids. And it's not just like, oh, we need to fix or cure. No, it's about as a society, how do we both say, like what does this what does this individual need to live their best life? And some of it is like resources for that child or for that family, but also it might be how is that classroom better? How can we make that classroom better versus changing the kid to fit the classroom? What about changing the classroom to fit the kid? Hmm. The incidence of children being evaluated as autistic that's increased over the years. But what does it mean you think for the reality for all children? Like has has the prevalence of autism increased over the country? The pre- Over the years? The, pre- the prevalence of identified um, people who are yeah. autistic has increased. I don't know if the number of autistic people have increased or it's just we're better at identifying. identifying that, it. I don't know. Yeah, and I, I feel like you're, you're right there because I, I was talking about this topic with the team earlier and I was saying, I remember as a kid, I didn't even know this word. This wasn't a thing in the 80s or 90s or so it seemed, but I'm sure there were autistic children among me as my, my peers but we just weren't diagnosing them. Exactly. Right? Yep. Do you think over-diagnosing could be a, a, an issue? Like, can a child have, a, you know, a mild developmental delay and be mislabeled as autistic? I think over-diagnosis is, you know, is often a, a problem. And But I would say that, you know, ultimately, the diagnosis is only as helpful insofar as the Uh, resources and interventions and treatment and supports that child gets. And so the diagnosis itself, um, I think, can be life-changing from families. I'm less concerned about overdiagnosis than I am underdiagnosed because ultimately, you know, it's about are the services in that child's universe, whether it's school or preschool or home, do they meet the child's needs? Yeah. Would you say that there are any misconceptions that folks have about autism? And, yeah. and about diagnosing it. What, think, are, what are some of the things that you hear? I think we think 
first of all, that it's a, a white dude problem, a white guy, a little tiny boy problem. Mm-hmm. And we know that's not the case. We are less good at diagnosing autism in girls because it looks a lot different. Um, children of color, we also know that they may demonstrate different characteristics. And I think we need to really think carefully about, you know, and also all the advertisements. Like anytime you see anything for autism, it's like a white little boy playing with blacks. And so then in our minds, that's what we think of, of what autism is, is a little really, boy. The advertisements. You're right. I'm thinking of some ads I've seen as well. Yeah. yeah all the little white the boys. The picture is yep. the same. <laughs> yep. It is the same. Uh, this is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Wait times for autism evaluations and diagnoses can sometimes take months to happen. And those months spent waiting couldn't be spent in in early intervention programs. So there's a project out of Northwestern trying to change that for more Illinois families. And with us now is uh, Megan Roberts with the Early Intervention Research Group and the Reduce the Weight Project. If you do want to join the conversation, we're going to open the phones briefly. Uh, We know child development and autism detection is something that parents of young kids can be hyper aware of. So if this sounds like something you're dealing with, Talk to us about your experience and, and what it was like trying to get a diagnosis for your child. Our phone lines are open at 866-915-WBEZ. That's 866-915-WBEZ. Uh, Megan, what could be a first step for families if they think that their child might be on the autism spectrum? I think, well, here's something that's important to, to know is that most children who go on to have an autism diagnosis are already enrolled in the state early intervention system. So we're pretty good, I would say, at getting kids in the early intervention system. What we're less good about is then getting them to an autism evaluation. So I would say if you're a caregiver in the early intervention system, right, and you're seeing, you know, your EI therapist or coming to your home, but you're thinking, you know what, I wonder if there's something else that might be impacting my kiddo's learning, um, then I would say talk to your, your EI therapist, talk to your service coordinators. They are your best advocates to help you get on um, an, a, what we call a medical diagno- di- diagnostic. Mm-hmm. If you are not yet in the early intervention system, I think a great first step is to work with your pediatrician to get an initial early intervention um, evaluation. I see. As we're talking about early intervention systems, help us understand what are some examples of early intervention programs? Yeah. So- the early interve- when I say early intervention system, I mean Part C of the IDEA law. So if you are a toddler or an infant with a developmental delay, you are eligible to receive services through state the state early intervention program. And so it is a statewide program, and what that means is you'll get an initial evaluation. They'll look at your child's um, communication, maybe motor skills, mm-hmm. so walking, crawling, eating, um, cognitive skills, and then they'll look at your child's, you know, profile in comparison to what we would expect at that age. And if your child is a percent delayed in reference to what we would expect at that age, then you are eligible or you qualify for services. And then you together with the team make what we call an IFSP. And that is a plan for your goals for your kids. So that might be one time a week speech therapist, speech therapy or Mm -hmm. occupational therapy where your therapist comes to the home and ideally teaches you, the caregiver, how to best support your child's development. So as you mentioned there, uh, there's a a lot of times these early intervention programs, they happen in people's homes. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering the impact the pandemic must have had on that. Whoa, baby. Was that when things really started to slow down? 
Yes. And what's interesting is we actually did a, a study on this on how um, the pandemic impacted early intervention. And it, we made a huge swift shift, obviously, to telehealth. But you can imagine how challenging it would be to engage a two-year-old um, via Zoom for a, a long session. And so what we found wow. was, yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> it, was a, it was a challenge. Yeah, that, that, yeah, my hat goes off to, yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> what we found actually was that people used um, what we call caregiver coaching more so that they were engaging caregivers more in sessions. And caregivers were reporting high satisfaction with that. It was a challenge, obviously, of, oh, man, I'm on Zoom all of the time and, you know, the technical issues. But ultimately, it actually had a positive impact in that, um, pre-pandemic, we observed rates like 10% of people were involving caregivers in sessions, mm-hmm. whereas post-pandemic, it was close to like 75, 80%. So a positive part of the pandemic is is therapists really were like, wow, this is really great um, working with caregivers, kind of because we were all forced to because right. it was easier to tell a caregiver what to do via Zoom than to work with Ooh. a child directly. So the main thing we're talking about here is wait times, right? How long are people waiting so that is so variable. So, you know, I know some pla- some families have reported a wait of up to 24 months. To um, get their child diagnosed. Correct, for the appointment. I know that pre-pandemic, the wait list was around, you know, six to nine months. And I know post-pandemic, it's been, you know, 15 months, 12 months, up to 24 months. And so, and when you think about a child, right, he's three. That's a third of his life, a half of his life or her life. And so that matters. We also know that that early period in development before 36 months is a heightened period of neuroplasticity. So that's when the brain is most ready for all that great intervention. And Mm -hmm. so to ask a three-year-old or a two-year-old to wait a whole year so they lose out on interventions for a whole year, it just, it seems bananas. So your part of this initiative is called the Reduce the Weight Project, which is working to improve access to diagnoses and, and resources. So give us more details, Megan, about the goals that you're working toward with this specific effort. Yes. So the, my goal, if I were queen of the world, by the end of the study, there would be no wait list in Illinois. Any child, any caregiver who says, you know what, I really would like my child to receive an autism diagnostic would be able to do so within, get it within two months. And that would be wonderful. Yeah, no, that is that is the goal. So we are seeing 1,200 children across the state of Illinois. It's a virtual approach, so we can reach counties that um, typically haven't been able to participate in research so south of the state um, to, to hopefully get all all of the kids in Illinois. Yeah, tell us more about what needs to change, especially when it comes to the way evaluations are being done right now, causing these long wait times. Yes. So health insurance law currently states that a clinical psychologist or a physician um, may diagnose autism. And so that diagnosis it is only recognized by them if it is given by those two types of clinicians. Why that matters is, is we often talk about the autism diagnosis as being the golden ticket. Once you have that through, but only if you have that diagnosis by a clinical psychologist or physician, it opens the door to, to additional services that you can get through through your health insurance. So we're not talking about the school. We're talking about through your health insurance. But the health insurance companies want you to have that diagnosis from the psychologist or physician. The golden ticket. The golden ticket. Yeah. The problem in early intervention is that um, many of those are done by these amazing experts, developmental and behavioral pediatricians. They are so well suited to to meet the needs of children with developmental delays. And they look at the whole child, but they don't just see the tiniest of humans. They see all children with um, developmental delays and disorders. And so if they are the the gatekeeper, which I don't even think they want to be, um, 
it's a, it creates a bottleneck. So we got we have approximately 30 medical diagnostic programs in the state of Illinois for early intervention, staffed by one of these, usually one of these developmental behavioral pediatricians. We've got 30 of them for mm-hmm. the whole state. Well, we have 4,000 speech-language pathologists working in the state of Illinois. Speech-language pathologists are also experts in child development. We understand social communication, and we're ah. often the frontline workers working in therapy with these with these ch- children. So this is what Reduce the Weight is trying yes, to do. We're trying expand to, yes, we're trying to expand access. exactly. We're trying to compare uh, a team, a developmental therapist and speech pathologist, their ratings. So they look at, they assess a child, they give their impression, and then we compare it to the, the experts, the clinical psychologists, and we try to see, are they as accurate? Because if they are as accurate, and there are 4,000 of them, you can imagine how that could really reduce the weight. How do families participate in, in your pilot program? Yes. Yeah, so right now we've seen 23 families, and they um, ha- are all the information's on our website. They um my, our amazing uh, lab manager, Laura, will schedule a, a, the first visits with them, explain the study, and they go through a it's a three visit uh, model with us. Wow. How does Illinois compare to the rest of the country when it comes to this? I think we are not terrible, actually. Well, that's um, good. Yeah, I, although it is, and but if twenty four months isn't terrible to wait for aut- an autism diagnosis, I don't. So I'm I, just yeah. looking for some good news. Uh, no, no. I mean, I would say that you know. What I would say is great about Illinois is that we're one of the few states that provides a really comprehensive medical diagnostic process as part of early intervention. So for families, they don't have to go outside of early intervention to seek this. It's really great wraparound care for them. They don't have to leave the early intervention system to find a diagnosis. In other states, there is no diagnostic process within the early intervention system. So that I'm really proud of Illinois for that. Well, what we have to do is make you queen of the world, as you said, so that this all of this can happen. Right? I would love to be queen of the world. (laughs) We've been talking with Megan Roberts, associate professor of communication sciences and disorders at Northwestern University, also principal investigator of the Early Intervention Research Group. Thanks for breaking that down. Thanks so much for having me.